This morning, I will be preaching on the text, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And in connection with that, we are going to read two passages from the book of Psalms and the book of Job. I'd like to begin in the book of Job, Job chapter 38. It's a chapter that, in a profound way, impresses upon us what God did and who He is as Creator. Job 38, and we'll be reading the first 18 verses, where the Lord is speaking to Job. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy... Or who shut in the sea with doors, when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. We'll stop there and then we'll turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 33, which we also sang from this morning. Psalm 33, the first nine verses. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. And then... 
We will read the text for the sermon. The very first words of Scripture. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, it would be hard to find a more profound statement than the opening words of Scripture. Because everything, absolutely everything, rests on this historical revelation. This is the beginning of God's self revelation to mankind. The first three chapters of Genesis contain the record of the beginning of the universe, of the heavens and the earth, and time and space and matter and everything in between. It contains the record of history and salvation. Everything in the Bible is connected to these chapters. And here we find answers to ultimate questions. Who are we? And why are we here? Where did the world come from? How did we get here? Is there a God? And who is this God, more importantly? Did he really create the world in six days? Or did he use some form of evolution? That's the modern question. More importantly, we have answers to questions like, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? What is good? What is evil? What is sin? And what are the consequences of sin? What is beauty? Can beauty be defined? What is marriage? What is family? And does God really care about all of this? Does he care about me? Can I have hope for this life? Can I have hope for the life that comes after this life? Is there a life after this life? If you want to know about life and death and God and our relationship to him and to one another, you need to study this book. Because this is where we find the answers. And if you're wrong about the first three chapters, even the first 11 chapters in the Bible, you're going to be wrong about the rest of Scripture too. So it's important that we listen carefully to what God has to say to us at the very beginning of His Holy Word. I summarized the sermon. Well, the heading of the sermon is simply, In the Beginning, God. And we'll consider three things. Who He is, what He did, and what He is doing who he is, what he did, and what he is doing. So I already mentioned the Bible begins with these very profound and familiar words, in the beginning, God. God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible, and that's no wonder this word dominates the whole chapter. And God said, and God said, and God said. This passage and the first three chapters in this book The entire Bible, in fact, is about God and what He does. That's 
who it's all about. His self-revelation to mankind. And note that scripture doesn't try to argue for the existence of God or the origin of God. It simply assumes that God exists. We don't find a scientific or a philosophical argument in scripture for the existence of God, but just this profound statement in the beginning, God. That's important to note because we confess the existence of God. We accept the existence of God, and that is, first of all, a matter of faith. That doesn't mean we cannot or should not use rational and well-reasoned arguments for the existence of God. God has given us a mind and an ability to think rationally. Logic and reason are useful tools also to convince people, perhaps, that, that God exists. If you're walking along the beach, for example, and you see the words scratched into the sand that David loves Sarah, you're not going to think, oh, well, the waves did that. Right? An intelligent person, mind, did that. Information demands an intelligent mind. Creation demands a creator. DNA, for example, contains the genetic code to develop a human being or a plant or an animal, and DNA is information. Again, information requires an intelligent mind. Creation demands a creator. That is a reasonable and a rational argument for the existence of God. And of course, there are more than that. My reason for giving those examples is to assure you, brothers and sisters, and young people too, boys and girls, you don't have to be irrational to believe in God. And yet, ultimately, belief in the existence of God is a matter of faith. To believe in God, one must submit the heart and the mind and the will to this creator and to his self-revelation. And of course the Holy Spirit can and certainly does bless the use of rational arguments. Just think of the book of Acts, how Paul argued with the philosophers of Athens. But only the Holy Spirit can bring about change in the heart and in the life of one who rejects God. And this God stands at the beginning of creation, at the very beginning of creation week, before there was material, before there was time, before there was earth, heaven, space, molecules, and atoms. Before the beginning, there was nothing except God. Elohim is the Hebrew word that is used. The word El means God or mighty one. And the ending makes it a plural, so it's actually gods. Now, Hebrew scholars call this a majestic plural. It intensifies the meaning of the word. So in this case, it intensifies our understanding of who God is. Since God is is mighty one, Elohim means almighty one. God is powerful one, Elohim is all-powerful one. He is God almighty, and all power belongs to him. All other power is is delegated power, including your power to walk and to breathe and to think. He is the almighty God. He is infinite, unlimited. Nothing is too hard for him. And he is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He is uncreated. He is the first cause of everything other than himself. And he is beyond time. He is outside and beyond space and creation. 
This is confirmed in Psalm 90, which we also sang together. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Or think of what the Lord says through Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So he was and is and always will be. He is completely self-sufficient. He is self-satisfied. He is omnipresent, that is everywhere present. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient, he is all-knowing. Nothing is too hard for him, nothing is impossible for him. He is able to do whatever he wants. He is sovereign. Well, let's reflect on that for a moment. God is not dependent on anything or anyone outside of himself, but we certainly are, aren't we? We are fully dependent on things outside of ourselves. We depend on food and drink. We depend on the sun and warmth and heat to live. We depend on water. We need God. But he does not need us. When the Apostle Paul was in Athens, he used reason to try and convince the Athenians to believe in the God of heaven and earth. And he said to them, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And yet, Paul says he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So God, yes, he is far above his own creation. He is not part of his creation. That's a popular belief in culture today, isn't it? That God is part of everything around us and that we are part of the divine. Some also believe that when we die, we somehow become part of creation. We get absorbed into the divine. You see evidence of that sometimes when, when you see a tree that is planted in memory of somebody and often people will bury the ashes of their loved one beside that tree so that somehow that the, the spirit or the, or the, of that person is, is, or the essence of that person is somehow absorbed back into creation, into what people call Mother Earth. And since Mother Earth is considered divine, it means that the deceased is absorbed into the divine. And there are many variations of this belief. It's one of the reasons, too, why... American native spirituality is so popular today. But what we learn from Genesis 1 is that God is above and separate and distinct from his creation, from what he has made. And again, think about this. Of what value would it be if we had a God who was part of the rocks and the earth? How can such a God help you? How can such a God have a relationship with you? Our creator, Elohim, he is different. Holy, completely different. There's nothing he does not see or understand. There is nothing that he cannot help you with. <clears throat> there is also nothing over which he is not Lord and Master. As creator, he has power over everything that he has made. He is the owner of everything he has made. Therefore, we owe him our allegiance and our worship. Does that impact 
your life, brothers and sisters, boys and girls? Are you willing to submit to the Creator, to His will, His law, and also to trust His care? Do you live with that in mind when you make decisions about work, about choosing a life partner, or when you're in the privacy of your own home, when you're in the middle of a baseball game, or when life doesn't go the way you expect it or want it to go? Do you behave in a way that shows that you know that this God sees you and hears you and knows your thoughts? Do you live in a way that you, that you realize that, that, that your existence is for His glory and not for yourself? That you were intended to worship Him and nothing else? After all, He is the one who not only created the world, but He brought you into existence. In the beginning, God, He created And that word, so we're on the second point now, what God did. That word for created is, means to make something from nothing. We need material to make something. We often use the word create. We are creative beings because we are made in the image of God, but we cannot create anything from nothing. We can rearrange things that exist, but we cannot create. But God brings forth things from what does not exist, as we read from Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Or, take Hebrews 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So God created with power, by the word of his mouth, he did it with genius, with wisdom. And he did so not over billions of years, but in six ordinary days, the heavens and the earth. Everything that's up there, and everything that's down here, and everything that's below. He spoke it into existence. So without God, there would be no beginning of anything. Again, creation demands a creator, because out of nothing, nothing can come. And to ask who created God is a never-ending circle of reasoning. That's like a dog chasing its own tail. There's no end to that. You see, evolution demands that chance combined with eons of time can produce something. But chance is nothing. Chance is not a god. Chance is a pagan myth. And time is no god. Time cannot create anything. Time has no creative power. The only rational explanation for anything is that there is a God, there is an intelligent being, and this God has revealed himself by his spoken word. So before there was anything, creation only existed in the mind of the creator. Before time, there was no time. There were no people, no angels, no material. And so Elohim is sovereign and has always been sovereign. And he simply chose to create because of his sovereign goodwill. And because he is infinitely wise, he knew exactly how to do it too. He made everything. He made you. He made your life. Only God can create life 
So you are not the product of culture or chance. You're not even ultimately the product of your parents. You are God's, and he made you in his image. He decided who you would be, where you would be, when you would be, what you would be, what skill set you would have. And again, this is absolutely foundational to our faith in God because if we don't believe this, we effectively undermine the entire record of Scripture. If we do not believe this, we cannot believe the existence of the Son of God as our Savior. I'll get back to that in a few moments. And if we do not believe this, we cannot trust that this God cares for us. But He does. He didn't have to create the world and the universe. He didn't have to create us. He does not need His creation. He does not need us. And yet He decided to do this. So congregation, God's act of creation is an act of pure and holy and divine love. And it's an act of His grace. Because he created all things and he created us to share himself. If God truly is who he says he is in scripture, then he is the one about, around whom everything centers. And so that he would share himself with us, that is, that is an amazing thing. He wants to share his holiness, his majesty, his love. His mercy, His grace, His kindness. He created us so that we might know Him, this God. He created us so that we can exist under His blessing. So that we can exist with His countenance shining upon us. That we may enjoy fellowship with Him. And that we might share, as we confess in the catechism, that we might share in his righteousness and holiness. We exist by an act of his sovereign good pleasure out of mere grace. Let's consider that too. Take time to think about that. God created the whole universe, but then he narrowed his focus on what? on planet earth this is where he determined to put mankind this is where he he cast Satan down onto this earth he sent his son down onto this earth and at the end of the age his son is going to return on the clouds of heaven to this earth so planet earth has been singled out for his vision his master plan for history and for redemption and renewal. What conclusion can we draw from that? We can conclude that we can and must trust this Creator God because He made us for His purpose. And if He can create the world and the universe by the word of His mouth, surely we can also trust His almighty power and divine love for us. Surely we can trust Him to care for us and give us what we need in order to fulfill the purpose for which He created us. But then we also have to submit to His will and to His guidance, don't we? Because this knowledge of our Creator ought to stir in us a response 
a response of love. He not only owns us as our Creator, but He also loves us as our Heavenly Father. So how, how then can, how can we ever live as if He doesn't exist? How can, he, how can we even think of trying to do that? Act as if His will doesn't matter. But so often we do exactly that, don't we? We commit our favorite sins when no one else is looking, thinking that God doesn't see us, perhaps, or forgetting that He does. We think evil thoughts which we would never dare to even share with anybody, our closest friend, and we forget that God already knows our thoughts before they even come up in, in our mind. Or sometimes we, we, we wish that God would just be, a, or we treat God as if He is a kindly grandfather in the sky. It's, it's kind of nice to have around when you're in trouble. But God is Elohim, the Almighty God, the Supreme Being, the Creator of heaven and earth, and He holds everything in His hands. And He is also able to judge that which He has created which is something else that we need to be aware of. He is the God who was and is and who is coming. And we owe this God our love and our allegiance and our obedience and our worship. We owe Him everything. Not only because He has created us, but also because He has redeemed us. He's the God who made us and the God who saves us. And we need saving, don't we? I'm sure we all agree on that. We need His redemption. Because truth be told, we have ruined God's good creation, haven't we? Through our fall into sin, creation is ruined. And through our fall into sin, we have offended this Creator. And yet, what did God do? God did not abandon His creation, did He? After Adam and Eve betrayed their Creator, God reached out to them. He did come back down to earth and say, Adam, where are you? He intervened on behalf of His people and on behalf of His creation. And so we owe Him for who He is and what He has done, but also for what He is doing. And as we consider what God is doing, let's take a closer look at the first two phrases in verse 2. These two phrases complement each other and draw a big picture the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So we learn from this that in the beginning the earth was formless. It was, it was just a mass of material, a blob of matter. Matter and material, but everything was there that God needed to develop His plan of creation, but it still had no shape or purpose. And the word that's used here is also used in other places in Scripture. In some places it's used to describe a wasteland or a desolate place or an empty place. <clears throat> so in the beginning, earth is not inhabited. It's not productive. It's not able to support life. It still has to be formed and conformed to support life. It's unfinished. It's, it's, it's like raw material waiting for the master planner to develop and organize everything. And yet it contained all the material that God needed and wanted to create the heavens and the earth. 
And in the rest of the chapter, you read how he did that. But in verse 2, we just have the raw material. It also says that the earth was void. That means barren or empty, uninhabitable. And then we read that it was dark. The light comes in verse 3, and light-bearing objects come in verses 9 and 10. But in the beginning, there is deep darkness. There's no light, no life. It's pitch black, darker than dark, you could say. And finally, it was covered with water. So the face of the deep, it says darkness was on the face of the deep, and then at the end, we have the phrase face of the waters. Those are two parallel phrases. This is how Hebrew language works. So the earth began as as formless, as empty, and darkness covered a global flood at the beginning of time. And from this formless and empty mass, Elohim would form and fashion his creation. But note well that he already, before he does all of this work, he is already caring for his creation. We're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the Holy Spirit is moving over the surface of this this water. What does that mean? Well, that means that God is not distant. God is caring for his creation. He's on site. He's giving it his full attention. This place is going to be like nothing else in all creation. This is where Elohim is going to showcase his glory and his majesty and his love and his grace and his justice and his mercy and even his wrath and his grace, his righteousness and his holiness. And the Holy Spirit was hovering over this place at the very beginning of creation. That's a rare word in the Old Testament. It's used in only two other places, most notably in Deuteronomy 32, where it describes how an eagle hovers over its young. An eagle will push its young out of the nest to teach it to fly, but it will hover over its young, and it's prepared to to dive underneath the young one if the young one is, is not able to fly. So hovering then is an act of love. It's an act of concern. It shows care. But the word also has a connotation of of, um, energetic action, ready to go to work, like that that eagle is ready to dive underneath its young. It's as if the text is implying that the Holy Spirit is ready to burst into action to give birth to God's creation. And that's exactly what happens in the following verses. God is bringing order from this mass, designed from darkness, and life from emptiness. And the Holy Spirit is the executor of God's plan. And as you will see when you read through the, through the chapter, you see that the, the triune God begins to go to work immediately and effectively and instantly. But in the beginning already, the Holy Spirit is, is hovering. He's caring for and watching over God's creation, making sure that it's ready for God's plan, for God's mighty works to be displayed. And again, congregation, if the Holy Spirit cares so much for a creation that is yet formless and void and empty and dark and deep, how much more must he not care for us? How much more does God not care for a creation that is full of life, 
Psalm 104, the psalmist tells us that God knows every animal and that he feeds the sheep and the cattle, that even the wild animals, that he cares for them. Maybe you know the story of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. <clears throat> Jonah didn't have pity on the people there, but, but God said that to Jonah that he had pity not only on the people, but even on the cattle that were in that city. Jesus tells us that God sees and knows every bird that falls from the sky. How much more will he not care for you? You who have been redeemed by his son, adopted as his child, and chosen for everlasting life. So you see, congregation, there's something else we need to be aware of that's already in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. There we not only meet God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but we also meet God the Son. In John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we know from the rest of that chapter that the word here is a reference to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who would become incarnate and take on human flesh. He would come into the very world that he spoke into existence. He would come into his own creation. He would join his own creation. He would live among the fallen whom he had intended for his glory. He is the God who said, let there be light and who separated the waters from the land. Think of what we read in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. <clears throat> For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, everything, all things were created by him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we've been created by him and for him. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for the glory of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yes, Jesus of Nazareth is the incarnate Son of God. He is God the Creator, the eternal God, neither beginning nor end. And here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we meet this triune God. <clears throat> and brothers and sisters, boys and girls, this God, this God hovers over your life. He comes to you. He calls you. He changes you. He makes you a new creation. And if you think about it, that's a far greater miracle than the creation of the world, isn't it? Creation is nothing compared to what he's done for you. God making you into a new creation, that cost him everything. Creating the world, that was nothing. He just had to speak. He spoke it into being. But to create someone into the image of Christ, that cost him dearly. He had to come to earth. He had to take on human flesh and live in a fallen world amongst fallen creatures. 
He had to live amongst those who are in the kingdom of darkness so he could bring them into the kingdom of light. He had to enter the deepest darkness in order to bring us into that light. And congregation, all of this was already on the mind of God on that very first day when he created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Read that in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And we need to realize, like the psalmist says in Psalm 51, we are all born in sin and iniquity. We're born in darkness and chaos. We are formless and void without the redeeming work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Unless we are born again, we cannot enter the kingdom of light. Unless Christ, by the power of His Spirit, takes us and molds us and forms us and fashions us into children of the Most High God, we will not see the light of life. So when God says, let there be light, He is breathing life into you. You cannot cause yourself to be reborn no more than the planets could birth themselves. It requires divine intervention. It requires an act of Elohim, the omnipotent one who creates life where there is no life. So I hope we can all see now how Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 contain such an enormous, profound truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Congregation, believe in him. Know who he is. Trust in him. Believe what he's done. And trust what he is doing. Amen.